Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissing. And this is a show for you if you're bored of watching people on the internet having arguments they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our brilliant guest this week is a BBC journalist. Vladimir Hernandez, welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you. And for anyone who doesn't know you, very quickly, the question we always ask at the beginning is, who yep. are you, what's been your journey through life, uh, how are you where you are? Um, so, of course, people, I suppose, will think immediately, I've got this really weird name, Vladimir Hernandez, Russian name, uh, Latin surname, kind of speak English okay, so <laughs> trying, to, <laughs> trying to figure me out is a bit complicated. So, I am probably half Venezuelan, half British, uh, in terms of places where I lived. I was born in France, grew up in Venezuela, my grandparents are Spanish, I don't even know where I'm from. <laughs> um, it's very complicated, but I've been a BBC journalist for quite a long time now. I've been covering a lot of foreign news mostly in Latin America because that's where my background is. I know a bit about that. Learned a lot about that, definitely. Um, but have been doing a lot of foreign news since then in different capacities, reporting, filming, producing. So, yeah, I suppose that's who I kind of am. Mm. And that's what the reason we wanted to talk to you, as every viewer of this program will know, because Francis mentions about it five times every episode, his mother's from <laughs> Venezuela. Um, and we wanted to talk to you about that because... I think in the mainstream public kind of perception of Venezuela, probably the last time we heard until about Venezuela until recently would have been, you know, Hugo Chavez, Jeremy Corbyn going, what a great place Venezuela is. And now the situation has got very, very bad. We don't seem to hear those same people talking about it in quite the same way. So one of the things we wanted to ask you to do is just to lay out for our viewers and our listeners what is the situation and how has it happened over the, the, the last decade? You may need to fast forward all of this. But <laughs> I'm going to start now. I'm going to go on a long rant about... No, um, it's changed quite a bit, definitely. Um, I, I suppose my own personal journey kind of reflects a bit of how it changed. So from probably early 2000s, I used to go there around this time of the year, February, March, trying to get rid of winter, went there for a month, spent time with my family. And that was kind of happening every year I was going back on holidays. Probably since 2010, I just now only go for work mm. because as a journalist, that's kind of what my work is doing that in sort of conflict zones and Venezuela increasingly became one in, in, in so many levels. In the last, what are we, 2019, last three years at least, it's become, yeah, un unrecognizable in so many ways. Um, I think probably it's fair to say that at least three million people have left the country and we're talking about about 10% of the population has left the country, Jeez. and that's just fleeing uh, on levels that are, have been compared to Syria, have been compared to Yemen, uh, have been to com compared to a lot of conflict zones. And it's just the, 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 the simple things of life that we just take for granted every day have most of them just gone away in, in, in different ways. Uh, like different food, ways. right? Well, there was, a so, there was a university study about it. Um, a lot. The government is not publishing stats for about three years now or more. Um, so we don't have, the, in a normal situation, you go to government agencies or entities and then you go to official data, which is being gathered by researchers, methodology, all of that. that that's gone away in Venezuela probably five years ago. Mm. Um, so universities have tried to sort of paint a picture of what's going on. One of the last ones that I saw, which was from 2018, was just like mind boggling. Um, it talked about 83% of the population was struggling to eat two times, uh, three times a day. It talked about how an average of Venezuelans had lost um, seven kilos in, 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 in average. So it was about more than 90% of Venezuelans had lost seven kilos in average. I've got 
a lot of my family still live there. Mm. Um, they don't want to go, and we can talk about why they don't want to go later. But um, I've seen I've seen my brothers or my mum or my cousins lose weight, mm. and it's not to a you know famished level of Ethiopia or those sort of striking pictures, but it is. It is really shocking when you see people you know. You don't report yeah. on people you don't know, and they become people you leave, and then you close the door. But when you also see how it's going on, people you know, it's, yeah, it's just mind-boggling. But anyway, it's a uh, it's a country that's gone. It's got the highest inflation in the world. We're talking about. Um, I think uh, I can make up a figure, and it's going to be probably true. It's probably like <laughs> <laughs> the last one I saw was kind of credible. Was a million and a half percent per year. And then I've heard some talk about the IMF saying three million percent. So don't quote me, IMF, but <laughs> it's probably true anyway. I mean, the, the, the prices are not. You go to a any place where you want to buy something, mm. you won't see the prices on the wall. You won't see a menu with the prices because they're just changing so fast that yeah. it's not worth even writing them down. Um, it's like the whole German history lesson where they would wheel in wheelbarrows of cash, that kind of scenario. To buy a loaf of bread. Well, yeah. and the cash thing is incredibly, again, it's a, it's a bizarre world, uh, uh, Venezuela. Um, cash is worthless. Um, I went there two years ago thinking this, this is the lowest of the lowest and it, it went worse. But people were selling cash um, on bin bags and it's full of cash mm. and, and they would charge you 100% of what that cash was worth because it was such a high high-valued commodity that you just couldn't get your hands onto it. You can't withdraw, you have limits to what you can get from a mm. cash machine or from a bank, but that is probably worse, uh, you know, a bus fare. So it's an incredibly digitalized banking society. I, a year and a half ago, I was there, me and the team, we were, we were in a really, really remote area of Venezuela near the Amazon. Uh, we wanted to eat something and there was this lady who had fish in a river. She was just like, literally just fish grilled it and we were like we would love to eat that but we just don't have any cash because no one here has cash and mm. she went, oh don't worry just transfer me on my iphone and i'll just give you my <laughs> bank account and i'm like blimey yeah and everywhere everyone's just going on phones or going on computers or just getting transfers electronically so that just reflects how everything's kind of like been turned upside down mm. um you can't make phone calls from inside the country outside of the country unless it's on whatsapp or something like that you just can't use a mobile phone to call abroad because the phone companies, most of them, uh, owed so much money that they, they stopped providing the service. Mm. Um, six, seven years ago, you had that, like, 30, 40 airlines going into Venezuela. Today, you probably have five, six, mm. um, if. Um, and we haven't even talked about insecurity and safety. Uh, it's a country that where thousands of people are killed every year, uh, at more than war zone levels. Kidnappings are just everywhere. I'm, I'm describing a picture of hell. Mm. But the most bonkers thing is about it, if you go there, you will see normal life. Mm. You just mm. see people coping. Mm. You just see people just getting on with it. I'm not quoting anyone, but you just see people just yeah. trying to adapt to normal life. It's a really, it's a really, really crazy place. Mm. And what is the corruption levels like? Because this is something that a lot of people in this country and you know, people on the far left don't want to admit of the corruption with the Chavez regime and the Maduro regime and the I think it's some billions, if not trillions, been stolen. Um, some people, so there are several examples that will tell you how bad it has been in terms of corruption. And I don't want to pretend also that this is a new thing in yeah. Venezuela. A lot of countries, probably in South America, Latin America, have had issues with corruption. And we've seen with Brazil the whole Odebrecht scandal, which mm. is huge of massive proportions. Anyway, in Venezuela, during the Chavez years, 
I think one of them, there were two things that probably led to a, it's fair to say, a rise, a big rise in corruption. Lack of accountability. The government didn't need to create or publish anything of how they were spending anything. We, we the BBC did a programme uh, recently this year, um, and they had a man who ran the oil company for about 10 years. In the programme, he was saying, you know, Hugo Chavez came to me and he said, I want to do all these social programmes. And, you know, you from a personal level relate to that. I think, well, yeah, that's a all right, that's a good idea, let's help some people. And this man who was running the oil company was saying, I said, yeah, I definitely want to help him. So Chavez tells me, um, can I have $1 billion so I can get all of that into social programs? And this man says, no, you can have $100 billion to do that. And none of that was ever published where that money went. Mm. Mm. I remember, I was still in the country at the time, and I remember that fund was created to, it was a fund created with oil money where the government would decide how to spend it on social programs. That money wouldn't go to hospitals. That money wouldn't go to help supermarkets. That money would go, went to create a whole parallel structure of spending in the country. The first at article of that legislation, I, I remember it, I just, I, I've seen, I, I can't, I've never forgotten that, said, President Hugo, the president of the, of the country can decide discretionally how does he spend this. That's it. Mm. All right, here you go, $100 billion. I don't have to tell anyone what I do with it. The second thing that will sort of give you an idea of how corruption went is that money was handed over to people who were A, not experienced in what they were doing, or B, who didn't have to be accountable about it. So the, the food distribution in the country about six, seven years ago was given entirely to the military. And they were the ones who started deciding where do I, how, I'm given money and how do I spend it? Mm. The military don't have to declare where that money went no one knows how that was run. Um, a lot of companies, because of price controls, because of foreign currency controls, um, were given licenses to get cash to import stuff and then provide it to government agencies. None of that is published. None of that went away. So how has this happened, Vladimir? Because I think the, one of the, the things that troubles me with Venezuela is that it's being used a kind of as a political fo football by people on all sides. So people who, hey, America say, well, it's American involvement, American interference, American sanctions has created this. The people who, who hate socialism in any form go, well, this is what happens every time <clears throat> there's any form of socialism. And uh, what, what is your assessment of how, how Venezuela has come to this point? Um, you know when you hear about these stories about when, when politicians get criticized for policies that people would say, but that's unsustainable, that will never work. Mm. Well, that's what happened now. <laughs> 1999, Hugo Chavez got elected mm. by vast majority of Venezuelans. There was no one in the country who hadn't voted for him. I mm. didn't, but there was yeah. no one in the country who hadn't voted for him. Everyone there, throughout the years, all the people at least around my social circle and around a lot of places were like, I feel disappointed, it's not going anywhere, I'm not benefiting until today, which is incredibly unpopular. Hugo Chavez, when he arrived, he was trying to cleanse or provide a breath of fresh air mm. to a political system that was incredibly corrupt that it was also, it didn't look at what the poor needed, it was very, there was a lot of class divides. Anyway, so he, he came in sort of empowered by, by a reason. He, became with, he came in with all these policies and immediately you were like, well, who's gonna pay for that? Mm. And now we are, what is it, 20 years later, seeing the result of all those policies. In, the, in these 20 years of Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro, Venezuela has gone through one of the biggest oil incomes a country has ever seen. We're talking about trillions of dollars. It's, the, the amount of money is just insane. Um, in the peak 
of that income of, from oil, the government was incurring a new debt. That is, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. You've got money, you've got the cash, you've got the wealth. Why do you need new debt? Mm. It was because of the, the policy of, let me increase the size of the state, let me create all these new universities, new hospitals, new schools, new programs, when there were already hospital schools and programs that just needed money to be developed. Mm. But I'm going to create, so you had, um, it, it all became political. Uh, this, the university I studied in, which is Central University of Venezuela, is one of the biggest universities in the country, underfunded historically. What did the government do? Create a new university right in front of it because it was more politically in favor of him and they appointed their own um, authorities. But, but you've got that there. Mm. So you created a whole new parallel structure of the state with all this money, and then when the oil price went down, it just became unsustainable. The, there's also the private sector incredibly went down because of nationalizations, because it just wasn't, you just couldn't get an income anymore. There was no profit to be made. Mm. Uh, it just all became unsustainable. And today, Hugo Chavez was <clears throat> swimming through this crisis through his charisma, and he was convincing people, and he was you know, an incredibly charming man, and people would follow him blindly. Um, Nicolas Maduro, probably his best quality is that he's been a great imitator of Hugo Chavez. If anyone who speaks Spanish or is, no, not speaks Spanish, anyone who's from Venezuela will have, who knew Maduro before Chavez died will see how today he is, an, he, he, his, his way of speaking, the, the way he, was, he, he talks, his tone, his voice, the way he acts, is just trying to imitate Hugo Chavez. Mm. That's mm. his best trait. Mm. And how much of this can be blamed on the United States? Because people on the left say, you know, you know, the states, this is what they do. This is their modus operandi. <clears throat> a government declares or a country declares itself socialist. You know, insidious forces come in, bring it down from the inside. Is this in any way true? Or? Um, I don't think, I think probably a very limited amount of people would be able to say whether this is true or not. Mm. I'm definitely not one of them. <laughs> how, how, <laughs> it, it's because... The government's line has been, um, in the last don't know, decade, let's say, our, con our economy is suffering because there's an economic war against us. Mm. There's an economic war against socialism because we're providing a socialist proposal and we are representing something the United States doesn't want us to have. We want to be, we're going to be crushed by imperialism, all of that. Um, what is an economic war? Uh, measures and policies or trying to destabilize the uh, economy via businessmen, third parties, all of that. That sounds like an incredibly complex plan that I, I wonder who actually, if that is true, mm. who, who actually knows whether that's signed, where is that written? Mm. Who's saying that that's happening? Um, the United States and South America and Latin America in general have <laughs> pretty terrible histories in, throughout. Mm. Uh, uh, the United States has intervened in Chile and Guatemala and Mexico and Argentina, Chile. Listen, anywhere it could. Mm. It, like evidently, uh, directly in the 1970s and the 80s and the 90s in Central America. Is, is, is the US intervening in Venezuela? I think politically, they're, they're clearly, they must have been clearly interested from the very beginning that they didn't really like the way Chavez was talking or the way mm. he was talking about the US in particular, his affiliations with Cuba and all of that. Is the US toppling uh, or been trying to topple the Venezuelan government for 20 years because it's a socialist government? I don't think so. Mm. I personally don't think so. I cannot prove you that the United mm. States is not doing that, but I can definitely... The main argument is this, this is all happening because we're a socialist government 
and because we have one of the biggest, or if not the biggest, oil reserves in the world. Mm. Bolivia has been a socialist government for at least 15 years. It's got the biggest oil and natural gas reserves in the world, has a one-digit inflation rate. It's an economy that kind of is okay. Mm. Uh, it has an indigenous precedent, and it has its problems, lots of political problems, but it's there, and it's mm. been fine. Uh, Argentina had 12 years of a socialist government. It has one of the biggest grain and commodities, uh, farming commodities in the world, has one of the beef producing countries in the world. There was 12 years of, of, um, of socialist government in, Britain, in Argentina, which got elected out. Mm. And that didn't seem to have the US sort of running it over itself mm. to try to stop it. Brazil had, I don't know, 12, 16 years of Lula da Silva, then had Dilma. And you can probably, uh, the narrative says that uh, Dilma Rousseff got kicked out because the US led a coup against her politically. That's probably more internal Brazilian politics than a mess than anything else. Mm. So why, why is this fascination with Venezuela? We are the victims of it. For me, it's, it's clearly a, way, it's, it's a blame game, frankly. It's an easy out, isn't yeah. it? It's, it's a an totally easy, easy out, out. To, go, to not take responsibility for the overspending, the waste, the corruption that you're talking about. Uh, and, and maybe for, as well, you know, someone who, who was born in the Soviet Union, the, I personally think that those kind of uh, hard, hard socialist system, they create the incentives for those kind of things. Because, like you said, there's a lack of accountability. Uh, there's the scope for corruption. There's this uh, fake idea that we're all going to be equal and everything's going to be fine. But actually, it does create a small elite of people who are able to, to seize the resources and use them for themselves, right? I think that the... Also, the main thing for me is that it's that lack of criticism and, 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 and openness to, if that doesn't work, we need to call it out. Mm. Um, you could argue that it's socialism didn't work there. I, I personally don't think probably that was ever socialist regime at all. There, there's all this narrative and talk and discourse about we are socialists and we care for the people, but on the other hand, I'm just getting rich here. It was a mm. change of elite in Venezuela where you had mm. traditional parties and then a new one comes in and right, we just replaced the elite that was before and now we're the new elite. We didn't have anything. But you have that rhetoric and that discourse of we're doing this for the people. Mm. Don't worry, we've got your back. We've got your back. You're still in a slum. But 20 years later, don't worry, we believe in you. Mate, that, that just doesn't work that way. Mm. Um, it's that level of if you're outside of the country and you're thinking no, this is all to blame, it's the US to blame. No, it can't be. If it's an economic war, then you've bloody lost it for years. It's, <laughs> it, it, it's, you're not yeah. doing your job, either because you're not winning that economic war or because you're basically just looking the other way. It's, mm. it's, there is a lot of whataboutism. Oh, you're talking about me. What about those kids in Colombia who are suffering as well? Mm. Well, no, we're talking about Venezuela right mm. now. We're not talking about anything else. And with Maduro's government, there's been a huge amount of criticism. Um, I've, I've got my family still there. I've got friends who are still there. And they talk about um, secret police, yeah. uh, people disappear, journalists being intimidated. Yeah. Um, could you enlighten us a little bit as to what is happening? I think that's... So you've got the humanitarian catastrophe going on. I just can't call it another way, sorry. It's yeah. a catastrophe. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. Uh, going on for a while. And obviously it's easier for media organisations to sort of, learn, sort of lean that way. But underneath all of this, I think it's fair to say that in five, six years of Maduro, the human rights situation is, is terrible. I can't, so let's, let's call out what I think Maduro has been doing or what has evidently been um, sort of explained and showed what it is. You've got people being detained and in, 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 in jails, a judge issues a release order and the secret police says, well, I don't care about that, I'll keep you for another year here. That's a complete non-guarantee of basic human rights. You've got mm. people being tortured, you have people being prosecuted for political views. Um, most, one of the main problems that 
Venezuela has is, why are there no elections? Because anyone who's a politician of any sort, and you can criticize them on whatever you think about their policies and all of that, but as soon as any politician comes to the fore, he will be, as much, many, most of them have been, banned for running, trumped up charges of, oh no, he's a terrorist, he's destabilizing the regime. Only yesterday um, I saw there was a judge who released someone on corruption charges. The, the, the sentence it was probably a bit wrong, but it was more about her political affiliations against the government. Everyone has the right for a political view. She was yesterday sentenced to five years in jail because it was, um, what's the word? It was, it was bizarre. It was like um, spiritual treason to the country. Mm. What does that even mean? Mm. But you get all, I, I think the judiciary in Venezuela and, and the way it has worked, it, it, it's incredibly unreliable and has led to a series of human rights violations which are terrible. We did an investigation uh, in the last year and we just showed the inside of what the secret police uh, main headquarters is looking like. And it's, yeah, it's horrible. I mean, we're talking about tortures of all sorts of scales. We're talking about people being detained without reason. We're talking about people's, I'm not going to go into porn, morbid details, mm. but pretty nasty stuff. Mm. Um, and on the other hand, there is an apparatus of people who have been armed and supported politically by the government, which are militias effectively called colectivos which is effectively the armed wing of the government, which is, uh, they're not affiliated with me, but they all wear government shirts. Um, and anytime there's a protest or some dissidents, these guys just come in and just, right, no more protests here. Um, only this year, um, there was quite a bit of unrest in, in, in the hills and the slums, in Caracas in particular. Uh, a lot of people came down to the city and started chanting and voicing their discontent, etc. Uh, some of them I know for a fact, uh, I know in particular one, it's a big one, there's a place called in Caracas, Petare, it's a slum of about a million and a half people, it's a big place. One of the areas there was completely taken over by a special force of the police. Uh, some people are said to have been killed and they just camped there for several days to stop people from going out. Uh, I, I, I'm always reluctant to talk about what journalists go through because it's not about journalism and a lot of journalists just pick themselves up too much, frankly. But I do think you should talk about it because I think how journalists are treated is, is a very good reflection of what is happening in a country. Because, you know, uh, Russia has a terrible problem with journalists and that tells you everything about freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. It tells you everything about how the regime maintains itself. It tells you quite a lot. So it's not necessarily about feeling sorry for poor Vladimir, but mm. I think it's reflective of what's happening in society. So do tell us. So people I've worked with, I don't know, I know someone who flew a drone over a protest because he wanted to get some really nice shots of a good protest. Mm. Uh, don't know, later in the day, secret police came to his house, took him away. He was eight months in prison without charge, mm. without a judge saying anything, without a sentence. And as, as he was picked up, he was released eight months later. Mm. That's, there's no rule of law. Um, I know people who have been, foreign nationals, who have been in Venezuela, they've been covering the crisis, and they get deported. I know people have been barred from entering the country. I know journalists who have been picked up randomly, and then they just get put away for some time, and then released. Um, it's not an easy place to work. So, um, and this is, the purpose of all of this is to prevent people from speaking out against what the regime is doing. I think, I think the purpose of this is just to try, and I'm going to quote a security guard, one of the security police officers who we spoke to uh, recently, and he was just saying, the purpose of this is just to maintain fear on what you're doing, mm. to keep you fearful of anything you're doing that it may have consequences, to try to preempt any further digging you would like to do. Um, a lot of the narrative that you will hear outside of Venezuela is, 
you know, the media invents all these lies. There isn't media in Venezuela. <laughs> <laughs> the, there used to be, 15 years ago probably, four big private television channels. None of those, they, they are still there, mm. but all of them were bought by third-party government-affiliated supporters. Yeah. Yeah. There are no independent television channels. It's in like Venezuela. Russia. It's exactly yeah. like Russia. When yeah. you have protests, there are you don't see them on yeah. any television screen. Yeah. When oh, really? Are. So people inside the country don't know that the protests no. are happening through the media? No, that there's none of that. There are probably, yeah, I, I'll tell you about the, the capital at least, there mm. are one or two radio stations who may broadcast about it, but in a very limited way. Mm. And sometimes, it often happens, as soon as there's a protest and people are in the radios are broadcasting about it, then the government calls in a speech to the nation and then everyone has to transmit that by law. Mm. So that the airwaves are completely blocked and you have to listen to what Maduro has to say. There is a big presence of the state TV everywhere and they broadcast a view of the world. Mm. <laughs> you know what, you know what yeah. used to happen in the Soviet Union? When there were, whenever there was some kind of crisis or a big demonstration, mm. they would play Swan Lake yeah. on TV. <laughs> so if Swan, yeah. well, Swan Lake was playing, you knew something yeah. was going, going down. on. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Where sorry. do people get their sorry, Francis? Where yeah. do people get their information? It's social media. Mm. And yeah. that's that's horrible because social media is like a horrible place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can get yeah. whatever there and there's a, and WhatsApp. Yeah. And you can get a lot of things which are not true, you can get a lot of things which are, but that's the only place where people are actually following what's going on. I don't want to cleanse the reputation of private media in Venezuela historically at all. Yeah. There have been moments where, yeah, they haven't frankly haven't covered themselves in glory. But at this point, I just find it fa it's, uh, astonishing to think about the media created all of this when there isn't media in Venezuela. Mm. And there's this image of Chavez of being a socialist hero, as it were. Uh, one of my uh, relatives was very high up in the Chavez government, and Chavez asked him to transfer some money from uh, the Bank of Venezuela to his private funds, my, and my relative refused to do that. He got fired on national TV. Bah. Yeah, and then uh, was put under house arrest until he changed his mind. That's amazing. Um, there's so many. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's so they, they, that's the other thing. And and you can probably probably people who are looking at what Trump's doing right now. That's a good way of understanding what Chavez used to be. Yeah. Um, Chavez wouldn't be as prominent on Twitter, but he would be. You see Trump right now calling out journalists in rallies when he doesn't like them, saying, oh, CNN, that's journalists over there, yeah, enemy of the people. That's what Chavez used to do. Mm -hmm. Just that probably in the United States you get roughed up a bit, or some journalists have been beaten up. In Venezuela, that led to consequences. People got really nastily attacked, and there were some consequences to that. Or you had the security services changing, uh, sort of chasing them and doing all sorts of things. Um, I, I think probably Chavez's sort of track record on that, it's, it's cleaner, despite having cases like that. And I know a lot of people, you know, this, we're talking about a president here, charismatic leader, all you want, but he will walk down squares, have its live broadcast on state TV and say, right, who owns that shop over there? Uh, X or Y. Okay, well, let's nationalize that. Mm. Let's nationalize that and that and that. And that's it. And that's, that's in a way how he run the country, mm. which is probably, again, unsustainable. That's where we are now. And what do you make of the Western politicians and the way the conversation is conducted? I brought up kind of Jeremy Corbyn talking about positively about the case in Venezuela. We don't hear so much of that anymore, do we? No. Uh, I think a lot of times when the US gets involved, you see a lot of people in Venezuela saying, please stop, don't, don't talk anymore. You just There's a lot of noise. You're creating a narrative. You're just mm. reinforcing a stereotype, stereotype that it's the US's fault, there's the US involved, there's all of that. Um, I think... There's been a big shift right now in narrative because a lot of governments have 
there's a lot of governments, especially in South America, who were not friends of Hugo Chavez or, or the Venezuelan government mm -hmm. at all. And you have people from the very far right, like Brazil in Bolsonaro, and mm -hmm. then you have other people in, you know, in Chile or, or in other countries. But there are a lot of people calling it out, but those who are of the Jeremy Corbyn mold, in, as in historical left-leaning leader, left leaders, etc., like, for instance, the president of Mexico, very popular guy, got elected, long-standing left politician, left-wing politician. He's not calling out what's going on in Venezuela at all. He's standing on the fences. He's saying it's for Venezuelans to decide. Mm. Uh, um, I think from an outsider perspective, and I'll tell you more about what the diaspora is talking about, there's a lot of frustration about that because I think there's a responsibility for people to call it out if it doesn't mm. work. And mm. when people tell you, especially you see narratives in the US or here in the UK about um, that it's not a dictatorship. Well, I just refer you back to, but there's people being killed illegally. Mm. There's mm. The people being tortured, people being illegally arrested. That's, that sounds like there's yeah. the marks yeah. of, a, of a dictatorship, frankly. Yeah. Uh, I was very, I for years was very reluctant to call it a dictatorship. It seemed more a totalitarian government. But as soon as you start crossing those lines of human rights, basic rights, uh, where you're not, you're controlling the system to not allow people to feed themselves, you're torturing people, you're arresting people, Sorry, that's a, that you've just crossed a big line there. And Juan Guaido, who is, it's it's very complicated. I mean, Venezuelan politics is incredibly complicated. And even if you're if you're an, an expert in it, it still doesn't seem to make sense. What is the situation with him? Is he president elect? Is he <laughs> right? <laughs> I've got an answer. I've got an answer. Cool. <laughs> um, I think a mistake would be calling him a self-proclaimed president of a country. I think that's what creeped in a lot at the beginning. Mm. This is not a chap who stood up on the street and said, I'm the president, follow me. Um, bear with me. <laughs> <laughs> Maduro got re-elected, in his words, uh, two years ago. Mm -hmm. It was an election which had a huge high abstention rate. The company that ran the software for the electronic vote uh, fled the country and said there was a lot of millions of votes had been tampered with and they couldn't account for the rel reliability of that election. Despite that, um, he swore himself in as the president. So that was an election with uh, serious doubts about electronic votes and no international observers. You will hear, oh, but there were international observers. No, there were no official international observers. There were people invited by the government as international observers. A big difference there. Mm. One of those, I, I know the case very closely, Palestinian man comes into Venezuela. He, on the side, he had some contracts with the Venezuelan government for imports and exports, which is all fine. That's, let's not talk <laughs> about his business. That's, mm. all, that's his business mm. and yeah. the government's. But he was not an international observer. Mm. He came into that country partially brought in by a government. Democratic credentials of Nicolas Maduro went downhill after that. Mm. So he comes, so he came in this year to swear himself in as a new president of the country, new term, but you were not elected or that doesn't seem legit. The constitution, the legal framework says, if there is a vacuum of power, it's the head of the National Assembly who should assume it. By the time Nicolas Maduro, terms expired on January this year, vacuum of power begins, Juan Guaido comes and says, I'm the head of the National Assembly. I should be temporarily ruling the country until we can call for elections. And that's his main argument. Mm. Uh, sorry. Can no, I, I, was, I was just going to say, if, uh, 
We've talked about Venezuela, obviously a very serious subject. Let's uh, lighten it up and move on to Mexico. All so. <laughs> <laughs> right, let's talk about chopped up heads. Then. <laughs> uh, we do. I mean, normally we try to, to keep it very lighthearted, but some of the stuff that we're talking about is very, very, very serious. Yeah. Uh, and the reason I wanted to ask about Mexico is we've had a, a couple of guests on recently to talk about drugs and the drug war and, mm. and the consequences of that. And I think one of the, the sides of it that often gets ignored when we talk about drug decriminalization or no, we must, we must make sure that people don't take drugs is we forget the downstream co consequences of it. Mm -hmm. And I think nowhere is that more evident than what's happening in Mexico, right? Because you've, you've done some work yeah. in the country. When you mean downstream, you mean like what's coming from the US back into Mexico? Is no, I, I mean in the production chain, like what our demand for drugs in the West creates in, in, mm. in the third world, essentially, in Latin America and the places where it's produced, where it's trafficked, etc. So I suppose um, one of the main sort of <clears throat> issues about the, the whole drug trafficking world is where that where all of that is going to. So mm. you've got all these people in Bolivia and Peru producing tons and tons of, of cocaine, let's say, every year. But that is only going to a market that is asking for it. Mm. Um, <laughs> who says it's chicken and egg, but still, both of them probably at fault. I think one of the things that you'll find in Mexico spoken about a lot is that there isn't the same scrutiny over, um, there is a big scrutiny over drug trafficking, cartels, glorifying all these people who are like, yeah, all these charismatic leaders that you see them on Netflix afterwards. But no one's talking about this huge flow of guns from the US back into Mexico. Mm. Um, I know for a, there's a story going around which is fascinating about Mexico really only has one place that sells guns legally in the country. And we're talking about a country of 50, 60 million people. Um, most of the guns that drug traffickers then use or criminal gangs use are, are coming from the US. Mm. And there is this huge trade in between, I send you drugs, you send me back guns. Because of course in the US we all know that buying guns is quite simple. Mm. Um, and, and then you have that sort of third sort of strand of, yeah, should we legalize all of this and, and get rid of it? Um, I think that's too much of an ask in a, in a country, in a country and in a region, really, that is incredibly conservative about drug use mm. in, in general. But I don't mean in Mexico. I don't. I don't think. We, I actually don't know that legalizing drugs in Mexico would make a big difference. I'm talking about the U.S., the U.K., mm. Western Europe, wh where that a lot of that demand is coming from. Uh, for and. Uh, do you think that the situation we see now in Mexico is a consequence of the drug war? Um, or the war on drugs, rather? I, I disagree with both war on drugs or drugs of war because it's just, it's a, it's a very, and again, it's, not, it's just a personal view, it's, not, it's a very simplified way of that this is not just these bad guys who are trafficking drugs. It's a, it's a very deep structural problem in, mm. that, in society there where you have demand on one side that no one's looking at. Mm. You've got um, the government structures in all of the countries that are producing, not only in Latin America and Afghanistan, and all, all sorts of Thailand and Malaysia, uh, which are convenient to this, which have agreements with this. And frankly, without trying to sound too conspiracy theory about it, if you look at all the story about the DEA in Mexico in the last 20 years, well, there's a lot of things that looks more for a film than for a reality, but a lot of it is reality. What do you mean? Because we might not be familiar yeah. with that. Um, stuff about, um, if you look at the Central American conflict where the US was funding paramilitary groups, this is all out in the open, I'm not making this mm. up, the US government was funding paramilitary groups, tried to destabilize Nicaragua, Guatemala, El Salvador, all of mm. the militias, left-wing militias there. The money used to buy those weapons came from the duck cartels. So there was, there's all these reports and, and books being written about 
frankly, the DEA was just working with the drug cartels to give money to these people so they can maintain their political views intact, and it was all Cold War, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Is, the DEA, is the DEA, let me re-say that in a more <laughs> clearer way, there are a lot of books being written about how the DEA is as responsible for creating all the drug cartels that we know of today. Mm. Well, wow. Los Zetas, that's where they come from, right? They were trained by the Americans uh, in order to fight the drug war, supposedly. Mm. They all came back, they all defected, they all became this new cartel, right? Yeah, the, the beginning of the Zetas, which I'm not clear anymore how, how big it still is, but it used to be, some years ago, one of the biggest and most sort of bloody and criminal organizations in Mexico. You had a lot of people who were trained as special forces, not just military, special mm. forces. Mm. Trained, some of them were trained in West Point, uh, in one of the most elite academies for the military in the US. Mm. And they were just, when they went back to work in Mexico in the army, they were just getting shitloads of money more, sorry. They were getting much more no, money. No, you're free, free to swear, <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. Much more money from, from a drug trafficking uh, organization than from the, the institutions in the country. Um, but who, who's more at fault? Who's, who's, is it the setter chopping off someone's head or killing someone or mutilating someone alive? Mm. Or is it the, the, the policies of the big entities who will know that all of that is happening and not doing anything about it? And there's a historical debt from Mexican politicians. There's a historical debt from US politicians. The drug on war, I think it's just got holes everywhere, frankly, on all of this. And what is the situation in Mexico at the moment? So, for instance, I read about Ciudad Juarez, yeah. and that just seems to be a war zone. There doesn't seem to be any law there happening whatsoever. Um, if you're a woman, it's, 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 it's a dreadful place to be, but it seems to be even worse for, for a woman in terms of kidnapping, sexual violence. How bad are things in Mexico at the moment, or does it depend whereabouts you live? Um, historic, how bad things are. Um, anything in the, in, the, um, in the northern parts of Mexico, we're talking Ciudad Juarez is on the northwest of it near California, and then you go all the way to the other side, which is called Tamaulipas, which is in between Mexi um, Texas and Mexico. Anything around the border between Mexico and the US, are they all drug trafficking routes? And they, I think it's probably fair to say all of that is pretty lawless, and not because of a lack of police. Police are there, but there's just huge doubts on the... Um, well, they all work this? for the cartels. Yeah, yeah. yeah. they yeah, all work for the cartels. I suppose yeah. that's the one. That's the best way of saying it. Yeah. Um, so, all of that is, yeah. No one's really in control apart from the cartels who decide what 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 the hell's going on. But that's not just that. It's then you've got areas like Acapulco on the Pacific coast. All of that is a big state called Guerrero. There, um, that is run by a cartel called the Michoacan cartel. And then you've got the, all the areas near Playa del Carmen or Cancun, which is called Veracruz. Again, that's another place which is you know, incredibly filled with a lot of criminal activity. Historically in Mexico, Mexico City has always been this bubble where all the drug leaders live, <laughs> so nothing <laughs> happens. Yeah. Yeah. And that's probably still the case. I mean, I think Mexico in general, in the last year at least, it saw a huge rise in murder rates. And it, this is not just drug cartel people killing each other. This is the, the increase of the, in the size of a criminal activity that leads to, for instance, the kidnapping industry in Mexico is huge. Mm. And a lot of these people act in coordination either with authorities or with the cartels themselves. And that's when like, real civilians uh, start suffering, when you get a huge growth in a kidnapping industry that's just effectively kidnapping uh, the lady who runs a laundry mat mm. in, in Mexico City. Uh, I did some stuff some years ago about the kidnapping industry. People were being kidnapped for $100. Mm. 
Like wow. just I'm being brutalized and then being called over the phone, can you just give me $100? It's like, what? Mm. You've gone through all of that just to yeah. give me, that just doesn't make sense. Mm. The kidnapping industry is, is, is a huge, it's the humanitarian effect of the drug war, really. Mm. Right. So this, uh, go. Yeah, no, I was going to say, um, and going back to Trump and the wall, is that where you think a lot of popularity comes from? Where he was saying, you know, we're going to build this wall, we're going to isolate Mexico? Or, is, or does popularity come from somewhere else? The wall is a symbol, really, isn't it? Mm, the wall yeah. is a symbol of uh, this way we'll stop it. <laughs> and then, <laughs> the tr sorry, I'm just laughing because you can build a wall, but the drug is going through tunnels. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How do you do that? And in the east of Mexico, so a lot of stuff, I'm just going to widen out a bit. Mexico imports a lot of cheap goods from China and then sends that to the US. That's part of the NAFTA trade deal mm. and agreement. And there's a huge economy around that. And we're talking about thousands of lorries going every week up from Mexico to the US. Well, guess what's in those lorries as well? There's a lot of drugs in there as well. Mm. There's no wall stopping that. Well, just to put the counterpoint on the wall, uh, <laughs> as I'm tempted to do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but no, but think about it. Imagine you live in, in the south of the United States yeah. and across the border from you, is this lawless place where people are being kidnapped for ransom of $100, people are having their heads chopped off, tortured, guns, all this violence. You'd want to protect yourself and your family from, from that, wouldn't you? I mean, so, and that, that, I imagine why a lot of Americans feel that a, a wall, while a symbol is necessary, or border security is necessary, right? Yes, but. <laughs> um, the, a problem as a result of the flows of immigration and drug trafficking in that region is uh, a lot of immigrants who we see then in migrant caravans, for mm. instance, or people going from Central America or all parts of the world go through Mexico to the US. There's a huge sort of uh, people trafficking business around it run by the drug cartels again. Um, a lot of those people are kept in safe houses and called for ransom for their relatives in Central America or mm. wherever they're coming from. Mm. A lot of those safe houses are in the US. So there's no wall to stop you from that. The criminal mm. activity is going on there. Well, there, well the, the, what history tells you, recent history tells you is that a lot of the violence doesn't go into the US because, yeah, probably the legal system, the judicial system just works much better. The law mm. enforcement agencies just look, works much better. But that, the wall's not going to stop the presence of all of that happening. And, yeah, you're not going to see a turf war between drug cartels in, on the other side of the wall. But the criminal activity is going to be there around the corner. Mm. And, is the, and what you're saying effectively is that there is no way of stopping the flow of drugs going into the United States. Unless people shut their mouth and don't consume it anymore, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, that doesn't look like it's going to happen. So the, this, <laughs> this, this, is, this is where we come back to, you know, the, the decriminalization of drugs. Because if you, t like from some estimates in some of these northern states in Mexico, it's like 70 to 80 percent of the whole economy of the state is related to, to oh, the yeah. car, to drugs. Yeah. Yeah, Just that, that means like eight out of every $10 that's spent in, in there is spent because of drugs, mm. right? Or, or by the cartels. So these are places that are completely taken over. There is no government, there is no police, there is no structure yeah. at all. And the only way that's possible is that our money, essentially, Western money is going in there into the pockets of these drug cartels. Mm. So if you, if you stop that money from going into the hands of illegal criminals and people like that, and you create a situation where drugs are legal and there's no incentive, that a lot of people would say that is a way that you tackle the problem on both ends. Here in the West, you decriminalize drug use and therefore you end up with 
Great parties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But look at an example like... <laughs> so look... Whenever I try and make a serious point, it fucking ruins it. <laughs> so Portugal had a huge heroin addiction problem. Yeah. In some yeah. 10 years ago. Yeah. And what they did, they just legalized it. Right. Yeah. And what they did is that people who are addicts to it now go to a clinic, a, pri a clinic, a private or government clinic, mm. I'm not sure the detail there, but they go and get their fix. Yeah. That doesn't kill them. There's no health implications of mm. it if it's controlled and managed. Mm. You don't go, you, you don't get cleaned, yeah. but there's not a business of opium on the street. Yeah. Mm. And that, I, I've seen some studies and I've read them about how that has reduced significantly mm. the amount of criminal activity around drug use. Mm -hmm. How many people are here in the UK have had their doors barged down because of someone's going crazy, needs a fix, he's just looking for quick money anywhere. Yeah. Right. Mm. You see a lot of drug addicts in the UK, I'm, I'm talking more about heroin addicts probably, um, who are just looking for quick money anywhere to, to try to get a fix. Mm. Well, Portugal sort of tried to do that, where, uh, all right, I'll give it to you, but chill. We'll give it to you in a managed way. You yeah. don't have to go and steal some money for that. Yeah. That's a smaller problem than huge millions of tons of uh, cocaine, marijuana, and heroin everywhere. But then you have another country in South America, which is Uruguay, mm. which legalized cannabis like three years ago. Mm -hmm. um, they allow people to grow it for a personal consumption. Mm -hmm. And that effectively led to petty crime on the streets reducing massively because there was no incentive for anyone to be just dealing drugs and protecting my corner. That makes so much sense to me, doesn't it? Yeah, it makes complete sense. Uh, I'm going to put the counterpoint to you. <laughs> <laughs> that makes total sense, <laughs> but here's why you're wrong. Yeah. But. But, 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 no, so we had Peter Hitchens on a couple of mm -hmm. weeks ago, and Peter, when it came to the war on drugs, he's very much in favour of, you know, being incredibly harsh on people who deal drugs, really clamping down, mm -hmm. uh, making, you know, you know, making the penalties incredibly severe. Why does that not work? Do you think? Because it's not as simple as it's. We've had a, dr a war on drugs. What was it, Nixon? What are we talking mm. about? I wasn't even alive. What, 60s? Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it had its run. Mm. <laughs> Clearly, yeah. it doesn't work. Why does it not work? Because you're trying to clamp down on the security side of things, but then to deal with the problem, to, let's deal with El Chapo, right? Mm. Where he comes from. There's a state called Sinaloa, mm. in the hills, all these farmers. 30 years ago, they were just producing, I don't know, let's imagine basil, yeah. strawberries, whatever. Yeah. One day they thought, okay, look at this. If I do cannabis, I'm going to get 100 times of what I'm yeah. getting for strawberries. Yeah. What happened with all those farmers? They're now producing cannabis or yeah. heroin or opium, yeah. right? But, okay, let, I'll kill the chap on all his mates. What do I do with all those farmers then? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're going to kill them then. Yeah. Well, there are no policies. So shooting down and, and executing all the drug cartel leaders mm. in the world doesn't change the fact that you have a huge economy that has gone all the way to producing mm. drugs rather than producing things that are not drugs. So there aren't, it has to be accompanied by government policy on to, I'm going to give you an incentive to not to produce drugs and to get your kids to school and to produce something that will actually allow you to have an income. I'm, I, there's a cultural change as well. Mm. Why me, farmer in Sinaloa, producing opium and getting my SUV bought tomorrow, mm. was my incentive for me to then, right, let me scale down um, this is what I should afford, this is what I need, but I have water, running water, I, uh, schools work, uh, I've got all the needs I have, and I said, oh, okay, I'll go back to doing strawberries. War the violent <laughs> policy on let's crack down on everyone doesn't work on this. It thing. actually makes things worse, because mm. when you remove 
the head of a well, cartel, that's, that's where all these wars come from yeah, because yeah. you've got 10 little people now competing for that top dog spot Open and, market. and they become more brutal and more violent because the struggle for, you know, there's a, an opportunity to make a living there in a country where it's very difficult to do that. And then the other thing about good, good people, the goody and baddies of, of the drug war are, uh, it's not that clear. Um, right, let's kill all the, let's get rid of all the chappers, put them all in jail, sure. And what about the government side of things? Mm. What yeah. about all those people who allowed that? That war on drugs is not going on them. That war on drugs, if you're going to do it that way, you need to get rid of a lot of other people as well who are not cartel leaders. Mm. Well, so the president. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Vladimir. Yeah, right. We were trying to keep a line. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So essentially, if if you were in charge, you would say legalize it. What would you legalize? Would you legalize cocaine? Or marijuana? Look how excited Francis is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, I think all of that, yeah, that sounds in a simplistic way. Yeah, I think I'll go down that, that route, but it needs a lot of work into what do you allow people to have and what sort of structures do you, do you let people, you know. I suppose if you legalise all of that, there will be that inevitably that stuff about everyone's going to be a huge binge. Mm. And then how do you deal with the fallout of that? Mm. If I was well, in charge, things would be different. The evidence really. doesn't show that, does it? Whether, whether that's Portugal mm. or some of the United States states that have legalized it. Uh, I don't think anyone's going to legalize cocaine, though. That's, no, that's just a really tricky one. Yeah. It's a different type of drug, isn't yeah. it? Because it, it, it's much more... I think cannabis, of course, cannabis is much more socially acceptable than all the others. But yeah. again, it will have its, its, its health indications to deal with, but that's probably more manageable. Cocaine is probably a much more rougher one. Do we need to even be consuming cocaine? But if you look at prohibition of alcohol in the 50s or mm. 40s, maybe whiskey was the cocaine at the time, and people are not drinking whiskey anyway. They learned how to do it. Yeah. Maybe we as a society need to just learn how to deal with that. Mm. I don't know. It's a, it's a, I think it needs a lot of health management and sort of awareness, et cetera, et cetera. It may lead to a binge. What do we do with that? All right, it doesn't lead to a binge. Great, but we have a backup option here to help people to cope with that. But I feel we're in dreamland here. That's, that's just, yeah. That just doesn't seem like the world we live in. Why, why no. do you think that is? Why do you think that is? Because it, it I, I, I don't know, maybe it's me, but to me, all of the stuff we're talking about is common sense. Like <laughs> anyone who's looked into it knows all yeah. the stuff. We know about Portugal. We know about Switzerland. We know about, as I say, you know, um, North America as well. It's obvious, and we, we could be preventing tens of thousands of people from being killed in Mexico and all of this suffering and misery, and yet, it's almost like taboo to discuss it in this country, in some, in, in politics. So when you talk to politicians, they won't touch it with a barge pole. I think the non-cynical view would be that people need to get elected and they'll do whatever they need to be elected. That's a non-cynical view. Non-cynical view. Yeah. Yeah. I think the cynical view is that probably, I think I wouldn't be surprised if the amount of people in bed with the drug traffic and business is so big that it's just they can't scale back from it. Wow. Really? Wow. Well, even in the way you reckon there's politicians in this country who, who are influenced by that. No, I'm not saying that. Oh, no, you're not, no, saying, no, okay. I'm not saying that here. Theresa May is going. Yeah, exactly. She's in it. Yeah. <laughs> that's, well, the clip, that's the clip we're going to yeah, use. Yeah, well, in, it would explain her performance for Brexit, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but in drug-producing countries, where, where does the drug trafficking line stop and then the yeah. politicians' line goes in? Uh, look, Pablo Escobar was, uh, has become this mythical figure mm. and a lot of his bad side has been sort of washed away in Netflix. Um, Pablo Escobar has, is still being remembered as one of the biggest drug cartel leaders ever have it, who have ever existed. The drug trafficking business in Colombia is like 
a hundred times bigger than when Pablo Escobar was there. Mm. Did we ever hear about that? Mm. Why no. is that not? That's still there. That's happening. A lot of politicians are still aware of that. Mm. The drug and war is the U.S. had funded military operations there, funds helicopters, all sorts of stuff. The business just grew. Mm. I think there's a lot of accountability to be had on the government's policy and official side of things. The more you dig, the more th stuff you read, like legit stuff. I'm not talking about conspiracy theory here. Uh, it, yeah, it's, it's not good. And I think that's probably why. Well, I guess in those countries, it's probably impossible to be a politician if you're not in league with these people, because yeah. otherwise they'll kill you or, yeah. they, or you'll never yeah. be a politician probably. in the first place. And how many politicians have died because of that? So yeah. again, we, in, in Dreamland, yeah, sure, we can definitely think that legalization should be one of those mm. ways. There are, there's a former leader of the Mexican government, someone called Vicente Fox, who, who is drive banging that drum pretty loudly right now about trying to legalize stuff. Will he get that through? Who knows? I mean, it would be amazing if in 20 years' time drugs are legalized. I mean, I think you get rid of a lot of the problems that you have, but if anyone has watched The Wire, if oh, yeah, you follow the bodies, you're going to find them. Yeah. If you follow the money, yeah, you're not going to find them. You're not going to like what you find at the yeah. end of that tunnel. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's very true. Yeah. Uh, but that's why I think we need. We, it's great to have you on to have this yeah. conversation, because I think I don't think when we talk about legalization in this country, we think about the bodies in Mexico. I mm. don't think we think about the fact that these countries have become lawless places mm. uh, where all of this, where people are being kidnapped for a hundred dollars because of the drugs. Mm. Yeah. It's direct link. Yeah, it's yeah. not an accident. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and I think if, if we put it, if we contextualize in that way, it becomes a much easier case to make, I think. And, yeah. I, and I think it's an important conversation. Uh, we're almost out of time, Vladimir. Thank you so much for coming no on. Worries. We've got Good one time. more question for you. Uh, well, uh, the question we always ask is, mm -hmm. what is the one thing uh, that people need to be talking about but aren't speaking about at the moment, talking about at the moment? In general? Yeah. Could be anything at all. Could be anything at all. Um, I, I would say that people need to really look at what's going on in Venezuela in terms of a humanitarian catastrophe. Mm -hmm. I think you see bits and pieces of it, but I don't think the world has paid enough attention to it. And I think it's one of the worst crisis. I think, I think this is something that's not going to age well for a lot of people when you go and look back five years and say, oh, we didn't look at that. Mm, that was yeah. an important thing that mm. no one was paying attention to. Millions of people have left. People are, are struggling to feed. It's a, it's a society in collapse and it's got one of the biggest oil reserves in the world. I think it's, a, it's something completely underreported everywhere. So what, uh, just to, I said one more question, but out of that, I did want to end on maybe something that people can do if, you're wa if someone's watching this discussion and going, well, this is terrible. Is there anything I can do? Is there, can I go and lobby my politician to do this? Or can I send... Talk to Jeremy Corbyn. Get <laughs> <laughs> him to answer a question. Yeah. I, 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 can't, I can't talk to Jeremy Corbyn. I'm Jewish. He won't speak to me. Um, <laughs> we made him laugh. <laughs> you know, you and BBC are supposed to be neutral. <laughs> no, damn. <laughs> Lost it. Uh, is there anything that we can do as individuals? Is there, is there a particular charity that is doing good work you feel in Venezuela that people can give money to? Is there, is, is there, is there any particular policy that you think needs to be advocated and supported? Um, I think you can do all of that. Yeah. But for me, please, stop looking at this as if this, this is a failure of socialism or not. Mm. Just, I think that would help massively and create awareness on, a, on an issue that is just being sucked into. If I criticize this and I love Corbyn, then I can't be able to because I'm criticizing socialism. Mm. This is not about socialism. It's not about capitalism. And that rhetoric is the pressure that is helping politicians not do anything about it. Yeah. If you're talking about whether this works or doesn't work, or I don't criticize any left-wing government in the world, this is, not a, this is not a left or right wing problem. 
this is something that's gone wrong and people need to call it out. Well, thank you very much for coming on uh, Trigonometry of Vladimir. All right, uh, for anyone who wants to follow you on Twitter to keep up with the great work that you're doing, what's your Twitter handle? Very simple. <laughs> <laughs> it's add Vlad underscore Hernandez underscore. Oh, perfect. Again. So, <laughs> so follow Vladimir. As always, follow us at TriggerPod uh, on all the social media. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Click that bell button next to the subscribe button to make sure you get notified when a video comes out. Give us an iTunes review. And remember, we have a podcast, so uh, it's not just a video. You can listen to us uh, as you're driving, taking the train, whatever it is you're doing. Uh, we have that on iTunes. It's on SoundCloud. We're surely migrating as well from that. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you in a week from now. And also, guys, uh, please just check to see that you haven't been unsubscribed on YouTube's on YouTube's on YouTube's. <laughs> on YouTube's. This is what I have to deal with every fucking week. <laughs> this is a new platform, YouTube's. Sounds like Looney Tunes. <laughs> anyway, uh, on YouTube, just check. And if you have been unsubscribed, please subscribe again. But uh, thank and you let us know as well because we want to know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, yep, thank you very much. And we'll see you next week. See you in a week. <laughs>